This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, Stories Behind the Story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, Stories Behind the Story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Morris Gleitzman, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. Now, I do um, feel as though you're a, a man that requires no introduction um, because there's probably not a child in this country who hasn't heard of you, but I will, um, there might be a few adults. So, uh, Morris grew up in England and came to Australia when he was 16. After university, he worked for, t- uh, for 10 years as, as a screenwriter. Then he had the wonderful experience of writing a novel for young people. Now, after 40 books, including Two Weeks with the Queen, Bumface, Funny Stories and The One Series, Morris is one of Australia's most popular and beloved authors. Morris's books focus on a wide range of subjects, from childhood illness and the Holocaust to a a, a cane toad campaign for his species. Um, I think the cane toad is the mascot animal at the Sydney Olympic Games. Is that right? That was perhaps a product of my slightly fevered imagination at the okay. time. Okay, all right. Morris's versatility is much acclaimed and he's currently the Australian Children's Laureate for 2018 and 2019. Wow. <laughs> That's a huge body of work. Well, I'm very old, so if I hadn't done a fair bit in all those decades, I'd probably be feeling a bit cross with myself. Would you? I, I mean... Um, you know, I think everybody's career is interesting and everybody, um, I think, um, where they get to where they are is all, always a story of interest for us. But I do feel, particularly with children's authors, that it must have been unimaginable when you were young to think this is where you're going to end up. Even though I had a healthy ego as a child and a very lively imagination. So I did project all sorts of um, somewhat grandiose and unlikely possible futures, um, including being a globally famous soccer star, which was never really going to happen given that wow. I wasn't very good at soccer. I like the globally focused bit, yeah. Well, you know, I Not was... Not just a famous soccer no, star. No, no, I was seeing, I was seeing the, the evolution of the global um, community, you know, long before it became a fact. And that, again, was a purely an ego-driven thing. But no, I didn't. Um, I, I certainly started to, ha- to, to fantasize about possibly being a writer in my um, early teens. And, and I knew how statistically unlikely that would be. Um, so... Why did you think that back then? Why did I think it was statistically yeah. unlikely? Yeah. Because, um, because I knew a lot of, all my friends wrote stories. We did it, at, we'd, we'd done it at school and, you know, some of us did it for fun. And I'd also, I guess I just started reading a few um, biographies of, of authors just to see, you know, how it might go. And, and there was a sense always with, with, 
the lives of successful authors that there was always a sense that of, of how fortunate they were to, to get a start. And there was all, often references to the fact that a lot of people, you know, wrote books and or sent stories to magazines and very few of those got published. Were you a big reader? I was a big reader, yeah. I was very lucky. Um, my parents signed me up at the local public library. I grew up in, in the suburbs of London. And, and so I was given free run of that library I guess from about the age of eight, and, and I read voraciously right through till I was 14, when I stopped reading books altogether for three years. That is so, you probably know this, and I've heard this twice this week with male authors, that they stopped reading as teenagers and then went back to it. Yes. I, it's a boy thing. It, it is a boy thing, and I hope it's... Well, I know that, that it does happen to quite a few boys. When I look back now, my reasons for doing it were very foolish. And I hate to think that that degree of foolishness is, you know, endemic um, <laughs> in my um, in my gender. I did it because, for two reasons, I, I was embracing what in those days was called the counterculture. I saw myself as a sort of, my future as an urban hippie. When my parents announced we were emigrating to Australia when I was 16, I said, well, I'm not going. This is not my life plan. Um, I'm old enough to be left behind. And although they never even considered that that would happen, they said, and what would you do were you to be left behind? And I said, I will be squatting in Holland Park. Wow. Because this, this was the, the, the furthest reach of my horizon for myself. I should say that um, nowadays only an idiot would, you know, think that you could squat in Holland Park. But back then... Well, I think property is so expensive. Absolutely. Then, uh, yeah. But back then, Holland Park was going through... This is a what is now a very, very exclusive yes. suburb of um, inner Western London. But um, back then, it was going through a fallow period and there were a lot of very wealthy landlords who were sitting on properties that were unoccupied because they couldn't be bothered dealing with tenants or whatever. And so there was this whole social movement of people saying the housing should be for the people and, you know, making it available to themselves. And this, of course, was a very um, exciting concept, this, mm. this, this sort of action-based egalitarianism for a, you know, for a 16-year-old. Anyway, um, none of that came to pass because I was dragged kicking and screaming like so many um, before me to Australia. Why did they make that decision? My father had been in the Merchant Navy as a 17, 18-year-old. He'd come to Australia a few times on, on big P&O liners. He did it because he wanted to see the world, um, but he only really got to see the wet parts of the world because when they landed in Sydney, they had to stay on the boat and, you know, clean it up and restock it and get it ready for the cruise back. And I think he had a couple of brief, you know, that they were allowed to go to, to quayside pubs occasionally, but that was it. And so he was left through his early adult years with this unrequited desire. And of course, when, when you have, you know, a passion for something, but you haven't really experienced it, it takes on, you know, even, even more wonderful possibilities. So Australia had become this, this, this sort of holy grail, I guess. And when he, when he had his, his fairly typical, you know, midlife, um, twitches of, of, of wondering if there were other things that he might be doing and we might be doing as a family, we were at the last of the, at the end of the 10 pound POM era. So, you know, my parents applied and, you know, mum, dad and three kids were all flown to Australia for a grand total of 20 pounds. Yeah, wow. Um, which um, 
which, you know, I thought was um, an outrage on every level. But it only took me a couple of months to realise that Australia had all sorts of interesting possibilities. One it, of which was that by this stage I started to think, I w- I'd become a big fan of TV comedy and I, and I started to think, I'd love to write TV comedy. And I knew, even at that tender age, from articles I'd read in, you know, the Radio Times or whatever, that most comedy on British television was written by a relatively small group of mostly men who'd been to Oxford or Cambridge, had featured in the, in their, um, reviews, and the BBC just signed them up. And it was a pretty much a closed shop. And what I discovered over the next few years was that, that, that in Australia, it was writing for television was a meritocracy. It was not a closed shop. I and mean, when I was 21 and I'd, I'd done an undergraduate, um, um, degree in, in professional writing at Canberra College of Arts Education. I basically, you know, walked into the ABC and said, here I am, what have you got? And they weren't totally open-armed about that, but, um, but I got a job in the promos department making those little 30-second plugs for coming programs, which gave me access to all the producers and it gave me access to a new comedy show called The Norman Gunston Show. Wow. It was being written by wonderful writer called Bill Harding, who after the first two seasons on ABC had had enough and went off to do some other things on a Greek island, leaving a producer desperate for a new scriptwriter and leaving me standing in the wings knowing that he was desperate for a new scriptwriter. So I went home that weekend and wrote some, some Gunston scripts I kind of knew I could write. Had the you character. been asked to? No, 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 I hadn't. But I'd made I'd made the promos for the first two seasons, and I I knew that character. And of course, what I now realise is that he was my first ten or eleven year old character, just in the guise of a of a bloke in his late twenties. But with all the optimism and naivety of that age, um, yeah. so it was so a, you it, came it, back with that script on the Monday or the script. I I. I had access to the producer's office because I would often drop, you know, my 30 second promo scripts. And this Monday morning, I dropped some, some, um, some Norman Gunson scripts. And it was, you know, it, it was like that classic sort of Hollywood, you know, I could, you know, the producers had this desk. What is this? <gasps> scripts. And by that afternoon, he rung me and said, do you want to come and, and write the show? Which, which I did for about five years. We did, um, I, I did the, the third ABC season and we, we then went to the Seven Network for three years and then we did a stage show for another couple of years. So, so Norman Gunston was my life for about five years. And it was, of course, by this stage, a very well known and mostly liked series. So it was a great sort of launching pad for a young writer. It was a great opportunity. Mm, mm. Mm. Do you know, it's interesting, um, you talking about the process of career and, you know, that, that some industries are closed and some are more open. I wonder, you know, as we, we, the system, the education system now is just kind of funneling people towards a vocation without, you know, having those opportunities and accidents happen, you know, for a career to come about like yours or like mine even. Um, those opportunities seem less and less, don't they? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a sad thing in many ways because although I ended up doing a hugely vocational un- undergraduate degree, it was a brand new, I mean, the colleges of advanced education in the early 70s had been set up specifically to be vocational alternatives to universities. And when I opened 
the National Times one weekend and saw an ad for this new course called Professional Writing. I couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I would have done if I hadn't seen that, I would have gone to university somewhere and done an arts degree and it would yeah. have been totally unfocused in terms of career. Yeah. But I know many people who've had, you know, very satisfying and contributive careers that they stumbled on out of the luxury of having those three years to, to, to really explore a whole lot of yes. opportunities and to discover things about themselves and their inclinations that, and I think that's all, all, ideally that's partly what education is. And in the, in more recent decades, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of funneling and it's resulted in a phenomenon that I see in my, my own son and daughter's generation. They're now in their mid, mid to late thirties and they are both, my daughter's on her second career, my son is on his third career, because that funneling um, allows a certain amount of choice, but it's happening for, for young people when they're, you know, mm-hmm. 18 to early 20s, and there's a lot of changes that are going to happen mm-hmm. to them. So, um, you know, they, they, are, they are typical of their, their generation. Most of their friends have had a similar thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they might spend their 20s or even their, the first half of their 20s doing one thing and then that might just segue into something different but related or they might as my as both my son and daughter did decide in their mid to late 20s to go back and do some further study in a totally different area mm. my son went from landscape construction to criminology and he's now a graphic designer. Well, and, and, and <laughs> that's almost a bit of everything. And he's thirty-four. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, but but I, I see that happening yeah. a lot in his generation. I do too. Um, tell me, um, so how did you come to write your first book? Well, and what was your first book? It was it was another piece of good luck, and I was I was talking to some visiting publishers and agents um, as part of the Sydney Writers Festival. Um, just a few days ago, and 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 the theme of my little talk—they wanted it to be a bit autobiographical—and and it was really about luck, yeah. because of course it's you know the cliche is that success in most fields, and this is certainly true of any creative endeavour, is it's it's a mixture of talent, hard work, and luck. Agreed. And if the luck's not there, yeah. and I don't necessarily subscribe to this notion that oh we make our own luck, well. We make our own opportunities sometimes, but that, but that is not luck. That's, no. you know. So I, I wrote a couple of TV films for the Children's Television Foundation. There was some good fortune there because I'd worked with, um, a young producer at ABC writing. She was producing for their education department, Sandra Levy, and I'd worked with her a fair bit. And she was then asked by, Dr. Patricia Edgar, when the Children's Television Foundation was first started, I guess in the early to mid-80s, their first big project was a series of individual, separate, one-hour TV films, and the series was called Winners. And Patricia approached a number of um, young producers, Sandra being one of them, and she approached me to write a screenplay. And it was a rare opportunity in television because it was... The brief was a one-hour film of a certain budget um, with um, with a young person as as the main character, and but beyond that, it was it was total it could be freedom. anything. It was total freedom, right? So 
and I, I wrote a film called the, the Other Facts of Life. And as these films, I think there were eight in the first um, season, as these films were being um, shot, um, the Children's Television Foundation did a deal with a publisher, McPhee Gribble, later um, absorbed by Penguin, to have, to publish novelizations of these original screenplays. So I was approached out of the blue to turn my screenplay into a book. I'd never thought of writing a book. I knew that... Had you not? Had you not thought of writing a book? By this stage, I had two young children and I was, you know, f- successfully supporting my family mm-hmm. with my You're work as, as a freelance screenwriter. But I knew that I couldn't really afford to spend, you know, six months writing something that may never get published, and even if it did, would probably only earn a few thousand dollars. So, um, but having written the screenplay of The Other Facts of Life, when I was approached to turn it into a book, um, a very modest advance, but I, I had the story and, and it was all there. And, and in fact, it, I think it only took me about, um, four weeks to, to turn it into a book. It and usually goes the other way, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. A- absolutely, yeah. It, it, 99% of the time it is authors having their their books and sometimes authors will have a crack at you know, writing the yeah. screenplay themselves. Um, not always a great idea because as somebody who has adapted other people's books for the screen back in my screenwriting years, you have to be absolutely ruthless in finding an answer to the question, what is this story really about? And what I've discovered as a novelist is that you don't always know everything that your story is about, or you don't always, you, you have one take on it, but there are other perspectives. That, we, had, um, um, we had Melina Marquetta in recently, looking for Ella Brandy, and she wrote the book and she wrote the screenplay, but she mm. described the process of writing the screenplay after writing the book as actually throwing, I think it was something like a glass bottle down. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And then just picking out the pieces. Yeah. Isn't that a good description? It's It's a very good description, yeah. I... Over quite a number of years, I wrote a mini drafts, and it's the only time I've adapted one of my books for the screen, of, of my book, um, uh, Two Weeks with the Queen. It's a movie that sadly was never made, but um, a wonderful British producer, Verity Lambert, um, wanted and tried to make that film for about 15 years and then sadly died. But, um, but it was a, a fascinating but ultimately sort of salutary experience for me because what I read... Because I think I did do a pretty good job of ruthlessly discovering what that book was really about. And, and that was fascinating because I discovered aspects to it 
um, that I hadn't been aware of while I was writing or even afterwards. But it made me very self-conscious about that necessary and often slightly magical mix of, as you're writing a piece of fiction, of conscious awareness and unconscious sort of currents. And after I'd finished the first draft of the Two Weeks with the Queen screenplay, I remember sitting down to start my next book and catching myself as I was evolving it and then writing it chapter by chapter, often thinking to myself, I wonder what this chapter's really about. Mm. And that degree of self-consciousness can be absolutely damaging to an author. Every, I think every creative practitioner has their own, um, they, they have to find their own balance between the conscious intent and the, and the, and the unconscious contributions to the process. And that balance is probably different for each, for each writer, certainly. And, and I, I'm, I'm aware that I have my balance. And, and I'm, I'm aware how important it is for me, and I suspect for, for most, to, to let the mysterious aspects stay mysterious. You know, there are, there are plenty of critics and, scholars who, who, who may choose to, you know, try and unravel things and, and lay everything out, do a full kind of, um, post-mortem. But, but, um, for the process to, to be renewable and, and to produce book after book after book, I, I think, you know, one has to kind of respect some of the mysteries. Mm-hmm. Because some, you know, I mean, when you're writing story, you're not writing the meaning of story, are you? You're just writing the story. Well, Absolutely. I mean, one of the dangers in focusing too much on what are the exact themes and meanings of this story is Mm -hmm. the terrible risk that you will try to deliver them not in the form of a story, but in the form of... But as that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's that's one of the worst things a story can try and do, of course, because... What I think is um, sometimes very funny, and we have so many authors in um, on a daily basis, and sometimes I'll ask an author, you know, what is your book about? And they can't get their head around it. Mm. They don't, you know, they've written a beautiful story, that, you know, and they can't pitch it. And I, and I get that in a way. Um, I want to talk to you about writing for children. So... You published your first book, um, and how is it then that your career transitioned um, from being um, a scriptwriter, in a sense, to a full-time author? What, where, when was the hit? I actually wrote, I actually adapted two of my screenplays as books because there was a second series of that um, sort of, um, um, there was a second collection of, of one-off Films that the yeah. Children's Television Foundation produced, and I wrote one of those, and I also turned that into a book, Second Childhood, and um, and then I thought that was pretty much it because yeah. um, um, you know I, I I was still needing to be a screenwriter for hire, but a couple of years later, two or three years later, I was invited to a conference in the U.S. Um, called Channeling Children's Anger. And it, it was a collection of, of creative people working with and for children from around the world. And I had, again, the good fortune to be sitting next to Anne, oh, and I've gone totally blank on her second name, but she was the creator and producer of Teletubbies. So she, um, she was a significant figure in, in children's, um, media culture in, in Britain. And I had a copy of my, adaptation of um, 
the other facts of life. And she said, oh, that looks interesting. Can I borrow it? And she borrowed it and, um, and she brought it back a couple of days later and said, you know, really enjoyed that. Thank you. And about a month later, I was back in Australia. I had a letter from a publisher in the UK saying, oh, um, I was chatting to Anne, um, who, um, you know, mentioned she read a really interesting book and that she said, you know, you should sign this guy up and get him to write a book for you. And so I had this offer from, um, from a very venerable British publisher. Again, it's since been um, absorbed by one of the big sort of conglomerates called Blackie, mm-hmm. um, saying, you know, uh, we would like to, to offer you um, a small advance to write a, a children's novel, you know, anything you like, really. And so I decided that I would give it a go. So I took a commission from an Australian producer to write a genre movie, which I had fun writing, a, a, a cop buddy movie with some humour in it, um, which um, which actually ended up co-starring John Hanna of, oh. um, of Four Weddings and a Funeral yes. fame, long before he'd um, made that movie. That's an aside. Um, but writing that movie earned me the money to, you know, take a few months off, basically, um, because I didn't assume that I would ever earn any money from this, yes. this venture. The, you know, the, the advance was about, you know, $1,000 or something. Yeah. And I started writing a book. Um, at the time, I was living in Gordon in the northern um, suburbs of Sydney, and our backyard ran down into a valley in, in which were hundreds of trees where the fruit bat population of suburban Sydney had their nursery. And I love these fruit bats. The neighbours used to moan about the smell and the property values, but I thought they were just amazing. So I wrote, I, I started planning a story about a girl who um, had these fruit bats at the bottom of her garden and was, you know, became their friend and helped them in times of adversity. And it was, I, I hadn't started writing it, I just planned it. And it was feeling good. And one afternoon, I had a sensation I'd never had before. I had this strong feeling that this is not. Morris said some inner voice, the book you should be writing. And I suddenly became aware of another story in my imagination that was almost fully formed. And I remember feverishly scribbling down an outline of this story. And it was the book that became um, Two Weeks with the Queen. Wow. And and I actually wrote that book again in, but it, it was an original book, not this time adapting a screenplay. I still wrote it in about four weeks. And the version that was published was really just the first draft with a few little polishes. It yeah. was as though that story had been growing inside me, un- unaware. And, and, and why it should have grown inside me is still a mystery to me all these years later because the specifics of the story don't relate to any of my or my family's yeah. particular experiences. I've got some inklings in terms of some of the obvious kind of emotional subtext of the story that I, could, I can see some, some matches with my, my childhood. Anyway... Um, my agent at the time, who, who was a screenwriting agent, um, only knew one person in publishing, which was James Fraser, the then publishing director of Pam Macmillan. He sent the book to James. James very bravely published it, not really knowing who it was for. He didn't yeah. publish it as a children's book. He just published it as a short novel. But it quite quickly found its way into the hands of teachers and school librarians. And I started to get a sense that you know, it was being seen. You're onto something. And, and, and it really started to become popular after some initial reservations because the, um, there, there were two, two of the adult characters in the book were, were gay men. One of them, um, 
experiencing um, HIV AIDS. So, so for you know, 1989, whatever, that was that was a little bit confronting in the yeah, children's book. Very forward thinking. Um, I want to talk about um, so talk about fiction and writing for children. I often. Um, when reading fiction, um, say, for instance, you're following an author like Ian McEwan or, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez or whatever, the fiction grows with the writer in terms of perspective. So, you know, you might be talking about young lovers and then you might be talking about, as you get older, your grandchildren or yes. like Paul Oster, I remember, you know, for me being just so contemporary and of the time. And then I saw him recently at a talk talking about his most recent book and talking about um, being the role of a grandparent. And so that, they, in fiction, you know, um, and in good fiction, obviously, that's part of you in it and you write what you know and, you know, um, but when you're writing children's book, and I guess it's a bit like writing crime fiction, you you're not a child anymore, <laughs> you know, you're way past the audience that you're writing to. I'm, I often wonder how that, you know, how your mind works to produce something that really resonates with children almost every single time. Very interesting question and, you know, some really fascinating ideas sort of revolve around that question. Um, I think, I mean, my own perception is just as a, just as a reader, are that um, some fiction writers prefer to stay in very obviously autobiographical territory. And yes. as, as you say, you can almost chart the passage of their life through the characters they they choose to put at the centre of their stories. But other, other authors, and not just genre writers like crime writers, and not just children's authors, um, I guess they they relish our capacity to, you know, place ourselves in our imaginations in the shoes of just about anybody. Um, and probably that is always easier if that character you've chosen to enter is at a stage in life that you've already had. I mean, there are some wonderful works where younger authors have created older characters, but I think that's probably a particularly difficult and risky thing to do. Um, and doesn't happen that often. Yeah. No, and I'm speaking from experience because yeah. I'm working at the moment on the final, the seventh and final book in the Once series, and Felix, the main character who we first met as a ten-year-old in the first book, in this book he's 87 years old. Oh. And, um, and I'm not quite 87 yet. No. <laughs> um, in fact, I've got a, a good couple of decades to go. You've got a so, while to go. So I've been very conscious that I'm perhaps for the first time ever um, telling the story through the eyes and using the voice of, of and, and, you know, attempting as the author to be a character who is, you know, significantly older than me. And, and there are some challenges there. But going back to, to your broader question about um, writing for children, of course, every every successful children's author in the world has the great you know, benefit of having once been a child. And, and I think those of us who've chosen to, to continually write about young characters, we have, we have chosen to write, I guess, at least semi-autobiographically about that particular time in our life. For me, I think it's, 
it's not even it's even too much to say semi it's if you know what's a what's a fraction of semi demi maybe i don't know but <laughs> there's um, you know I, i'm sure there is a little bit of of the very young Morris Gleisman in all my main characters. But also, it, I think it's more interesting than that because in a way that is very hard for most adults in adult life and culture, where certainly in, in most professional realms, but in a lot of personal ones too, there are all sorts of coded reminders in, in, in adult culture that one really has to leave childish things behind. You know, we use words like childish when addressed to an adult as a, as a totally pejorative thing. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's derogatory too. It's That's actually right. grow up. That's right. Yeah. But um, those of us lucky enough to have very good reason to keep that part of ourselves alive and healthy and in a way that is about dimensions other than purely chronological to... To, to have the opportunity for that part, those parts of ourselves to grow. Um, and there's nothing like, you know, sharing adventures and, and huge, um, life experiences and developmental processes with a lot of different young characters for one's own, for the child part of oneself to have an opportunity to grow in all sorts of ways without necessarily aging in the conventional sense. Yeah. And I think it's a shame that we don't make it more possible for every adult to have that experience because um, it, I think it should be possible and, and I can say it is possible to to mature and grow older literally as, as a person. I'm, I'm in my mid-60s now. But to have the earlier selves still present and still active and still learning things and still evolving and de and developing it's it's um being childlike being being childlike mm -hmm. and and also becoming an amalgam of of um of it it's not it's all very fluid you know there are there are times when i i watch myself being very adult and very childlike simultaneously mm -hmm. And sometimes that can be a really useful, you know, a, a really useful thing. So I think one of the things that, that fiction can, can help remind us, and certainly the process of writing and reading fiction, because, of course, a lot of adults enjoy reading um, stories about, about children. Absolutely. For, for other than just purely professional or, or, yeah. or parental sort of um, quality control reasons. Yeah. Um, and... The notion that that the demographics of our our individual demographics um, have to be a series of of sort of shut off points where we mm. totally jettison you know um, you know that that image of being a rocket sort of heading heading to our eventual celestial destination but jettisoning each unit there there goes the the empty fuel cell of our twenties our thirties our forties even our our you know, first years. That's that's a great shame. Mm. Um, I agree totally. Yeah. Um, well, stay childlike. Keep writing. Um, we've loved having you here today. Thank you so much, Morris Glass. My pleasure. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. 
podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.